This week on The Futurists, Zoe Routh. It's all about the cautionary tale. We present a future. I think every leader is aspiring to a better future. And yet, when we try and create those things, there's always things that hold us back. Welcome back to The Futurist with myself and Rob Tersek. Hi. How are you? Super, thanks. Good to see you again, Bert. Good. So we have another Futurist on. I guess that's like you know, part of the shtick now, everyone's futurist on our show or sci-fi author or something. Uh, Zoe Rouse, she's a leadership futurist, a podcaster. She's got her own podcast sound booth set up where she's coming to us from today. And of course, a multiple award-winning author. And she's a leadership futurist. She works with leaders and teams looking at uh, future horizons. Um, She's Canadian originally, um, but uh, lives down under in Australia. And we're going to talk to her about um, her fifth book, a near near future sci-fi book called The Olympus, Olympus Project, a dystopian future. So, uh, you know, we get into that too on, on this show. But Zoe, welcome to The Futurists. Thank you so much, Brett and Rob. I'm really delighted to be here. We're glad to have you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, let me start with a simple question. When did you first realize you wanted to be a futurist? <laughs> uh, well, I think when I was thinking about my futurist journey, I thought, when did I become self-aware as a futurist? That's probably a good way of understanding. And that probably was more recently. And yet the genesis of the work that I do started in a very specific point in time with the collision of two experiences. And that was in 2009, where I went to a conference and I saw Craig Rispin, who is an Australian futurist, and he did a presentation on the future. And I spent the entire keynote with my mouth hanging open going, oh my God, what is going on? I had no idea all these things were happening. And my head exploded with opportunities and possibilities and basically scenarios, I guess, in terms of what the future was holding. And I got really super excited. And I went up to him straight afterwards and said, give me your details. I want to know more. I want to know about how you do this, how you stay on top of all this stuff. And that was sort of the start of trying to understand and navigate the future. The other experience- Sounds Sounds like our podcast. (laughs) <laughs> your podcast that's is a, just like that. That's how yeah. we respond to futurists, yeah. <laughs> well, there's so much amazing stuff happening, and it's really wonderful to be able to decipher what does this mean. Um, I think the other the other important thing that happened in that very same year, I started working at the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation, and that gave me exposure to a an adult development theory in, in leadership called uh, Leadership Maturity Framework. And it was about the concept that as adults, we continue to grow and evolve. We evolve our worldviews, our values, and the way that we see ourselves in the world around us. And those two things came together in kind of like an amazing synthesis where I went, wow, if this is the future and all these things are happening, we absolutely need to evolve as leaders in order to be able to navigate that and deal with it. And so the the compunction and the the compunction to actually help develop people and their thinking and their values system became an imperative for me as a as a leadership professional. So those two things came together and went, wow, I, there's a lot of work to be done in, to to help us as humans to be able to contend with the context that's that we find ourselves in that we didn't necessarily plan, uh, and yet we need to to deal with. It's an interesting point you make. Uh, it's and it does affect leadership. Uh, there's there's kind of an epiphany, right, that you have in a moment we realize like, 
wow, I really need to understand this stuff better. You know, there's, there's all this yeah. future technology coming and with it all kinds of social change and economic change and business change. And I think many, many people are conditioned. If you work in a big corporation, particularly, you may be conditioned to think it's not my job. My job is to focus on this, you know, operational thing mm. that we, that we do every single day and we're going to do it next year the same way we did it last year. And I think increasingly that's no longer the case. Uh, increasingly, the, the situation is that everybody in the organization, marketing, sales, operations, product development, manufacturing, distribution, every single one of those is subject to some significant change, sometimes multiple changes at once. And so there's a leadership moment there uh, where someone has Absolutely. to make a decision, like I'm going to step up and be the person in the organization who knows about these things and can help make an informed decision about how to proceed. Yeah, a lot of leadership tends to be quite defensive of the legacy as well, right? You know, um, be, particularly if the organization has developed DNA where that legacy is what has made it successful. So, um, you know, how do you, you know, that sort of self-awareness as a leader to be able to adapt is is pretty unique, you know? Oh, it takes a lot of work. Yeah, it takes a lot of work to drop the ego out of being attached to legacy. Uh, that's for sure. That's one of the major obstacles that people find. In terms of leaders getting their staff or their their teams to be more aware, that's also a big challenge. It's one of the biggest complaints I get from CEOs is, how do I get my teams to think more strategically, get them out of their silos and doing their job to think about the whole of organization and where we're heading? And there's there's some significant barriers to that. Uh, not least of which is just the urgent and important and getting the job done. Um, and one of the other ones I've found as an obstacle, which is an interesting one, which ties in a little bit to legacy and ego stuff, is that it depends on how the organization is measuring success and how they're rewarding people. So if they're rewarding people for individual accomplishments, of course, people are going to focus on that. They're not going to think about the whole of the organization because they put themselves first. All of us do. We're all center of our own universe. And so if we're rewarded for our own individual performance, we're not going to get our head above the parapet because why? <laughs> So why those bother? are some of the challenges that are, yeah, why bother? Yeah, because, because it's not they're not in the job definition. You know, people say, well, I've got plenty of work to do at my desk. That's for the here and now. I'll let somebody else, strategic planning, they can handle that. Yeah. yeah. So you just touched on a couple of themes that I think are important. Uh, one is the idea of allocating responsibilities and rewards. You know, that's, that's a leadership function. Uh, and another one is thinking about what comes next or having some vision down uh, ahead. Uh, can you tell us broadly, what is your definition of leadership? Sure. I believe that leadership is about galvanizing others in pursuit of a better future. <laughs> I really have that in my definition. Um, and I think all of us aspire to live in a better future, to improve things, to make a contribution, to have an, a positive impact. And so leadership is about how do we get together as humans and to to accomplish that together. Yeah, this is, I, I mean, I, I obviously wholeheartedly agree with that, but, um, you know, commerce and the operation of businesses you know but particularly over the last 50 years you know because if you look back maybe 150 years i think you'd find different sort of cultures around innovation and industry but um it, it's become a lot more about performance of the business in terms of revenue generation that has been producing necessarily positive outcomes for people outside of the influence of the corporation, except for the products and services, you know, not, not like, like there's not a, a net um, collective view that 
industry is there for the purpose of bettering humanity necessarily. Like if as long as it's making a dollar. You're totally talking to my favorite topic, Brett. And I know this, you know, capitalism needs a reform has been a topic that's popped up on your show uh, already. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think Rob's sick of me talking about this. (laughs) No, no, I'm with you on it because that Milton Friedman stuff from 50 years ago still haunts us to this day. We've sort of optimized around that idea of shareholder value is the only thing a corporation needs to focus on. (sighs) I think it's completely incorrect. There are stakeholders besides the shareholders whose voice is So what do you think will be the catalyst for, for that change, you know, in terms of the mission of the human race? I think it needs a tipping point. And if we look at adult leadership theory, it says that we need about 10% of the population to adopt a set of values and worldviews before it becomes a mainstream thing, before we have a collective change. And so I think it's rather than there's rather than a single catalyst that's going to provoke us into this way of thinking, I think it's going to be a drip feed and a and a groundswell that's going to to happen. And I think as leading thinkers keep talking about this, keep sharing the perspectives then and keep doing our work around the planet, then we'll start to get uh, more of an awareness around it. And I see that I see it happening. Like there's, there's some bigger platforms that are helping with this, like, um, uh, like B Corp, for example, you know, and certifying organizations that are, have commitment to sustainable development goals and are doing carbon accounting. We have books like Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth, which came out five years ago. I only discovered recently when like, ah, here's our, here's our roadmap of how we actually get this done. Uh, so there is a bigger interest and it's interesting right now, like as a point in time to watch the pendulum swing between old ways of doing and new ways of doing. And we see that in the tide of uh, autocracy and con- and conservative values swinging back to progressive values. And I use that outside of the, ex- uh, the United States explicit reference to more of a global reference. And we see this happening uh, in in the UK, in the US, in Australia as well. And sort of this is how development works. It's not a linear progression. It's not an exponential one in some ways. It's more of this messy backwards and forwards exploration and negotiation of, yeah and negotiation right because we don't want to throw out everything that's good about past worldviews we want to take the best of that with us and this is part of the challenge with development in, in order to progress we have to reject the earlier stages of leadership maturity in order to embrace the newness and it's in the rejection that we cause conflict with our neighbors and with our our siblings and and our our friends because if two worldviews don't exist side by side very well until we are able to see the value in each. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a careful journey that needs nurturing. So will there be a catalyst? I thought the pandemic would be a huge catalyst. And this is me and my naivety thinking, oh my God, this is the one thing that's going to unite the planet, unite the globe. We are all facing this. All humans on the planet are facing this crisis. We must unite. We will unite. And to a certain degree that happened, but not in the utopian version of, of what happened because Yes, there was lots of things that we did collaboratively to find solutions as humans. And there was plenty of things that we didn't. We we had a reversal into uh, parochialism, isolationism, nationalism, as people buckled down and just looked after their own. So I think there was a bit of both happening. Um, idealistically, I thought it would be the one thing that would help draw us forward, but it didn't draw us forward in a major leap, just more in a, in a nudge. You didn't factor in the Trump factor. but but also there's this desire you saw you see this right now now that the the pandemic is easing up uh, it seems i wouldn't say it's over because 
winter's coming here in the northern hemisphere and we're going to find mm-hmm. out just how much more there is to this particular virus but the but but it's easing up right and so uh what you see now is this incredibly deep-seated desire to revert back to how things were in 2019 and, and I keep telling people it's not going to go back. Some things, no, sure, no. some things will continue, but some things have changed irrevocably. Like one example is now that people have learned that they can work anywhere, it's no longer yeah. a theory. And mm-hmm. um, and I think the universities have taken exactly the wrong lessons here. Uh, many universities are doubling down on the on-campus experience because they bungled the remote learning so badly. But that's not really the right lesson to take away. I think the right lesson to take away is resilience demands that you develop remote learning Mm. and thereby knock out half the cost of education and, you know, make it accessible to many, many more people. That's how you scale learning. Yeah. As a leadership coach or a leadership trainer, what do you do when you run into those kinds of um, hidebound, you know, kind of uh, resistance or I guess, uh, you know, reactionary um, responses. Immune system. Change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Corporate <laughs> immune system. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, it's tough, right? So these are all speaking to a lot of um, unconscious biases. The sunk cost fallacy with the universities is a classic one. They have all this infrastructure. <laughs> what are we going to do with it now? Like, it seems like a huge waste if we don't get people back into the office or back into the classrooms. And the same thing with a lot of office people. So part of the work is pointing that out, that there's some biases that are at play here and to, to, to ask better questions. So in terms of how do I help organizations really shine the light on the stuff that they don't need to see, uh, it's gently, gently, because this is terrifying stuff for people, right? It's it's It triggers all sorts of survival mode mechanisms. And when people are in survival mode, th- biologically, their cortisol and adrenaline goes up, their peripheral vision gets shut off, they go into tunnel vision, and they don't want to listen. So it's mm-hmm. gently, gently is the strategy. In terms of methodology, uh, one of the things I like to do is actually ask careful questions, you know? So what would have to be true for this in order to work, uh, looking at, for example, their blind spot and gently, gently saying, well, let's explore the context. And I, I do three things uh, to help them understand contextual, uh, contextual um, situation that they find themselves. One is look far. So look far is all about two things, looking on time horizons, what has happened in the past to lead us to this point and into the future, what could happen in the next 10 years. And so looking far, people have a hard time with timelines. It's it's a meth, it's a muscle that needs to be developed. And I think about when I was 32 and uh, a guru uh, was a personal development guru and said, what's your 10 year plan? I'm like, I'm 32. <laughs> 42 seems really old really ancient. I can barely get through the year. Like I have goals for the year. So our sense of time is actually tied to our leadership maturity as well. So helping our leaders sort of get comfortable looking into the past and looking like what's happened in the last 10 years, 20 years, 50 years that has led to this point helps them stretch the capability of understanding patterns and and changes over time so they can better project. So looking far is the first piece. Going deep is another one, and I use um, some futurist methodologies there, such as the problem tree to dig into the problems that they're seeing, looking below the surface and the complexity that that's there. That's a systems thinking uh, methodology as well. And the the third piece is to be wide, and that's to look at ripple effects of their action. So if we're looking at a blind spot of, let's say, a leader who says, everybody must come back into the office, that's it, 100%, and they're 
thankfully, few, there are fewer people doing that in my experience. But let's say you have somebody who's got a blind spot like that. It's like, okay, let's look at the ramifications of that. What does that mean for your individual worker who was grateful during the pandemic that they didn't have to drive an hour and a half in back-to-back traffic each day? Uh, so three hours they got back with their family. So if you make this call, the ramifications for them and their family is this. Were you aware of that? And the ramifications on those kids growing up is this. And the ramifications of having more vehicles on the road is this. And so you start teasing out with them, what are the implications of that? So that future consequence wheel is an element uh, in terms of practice that I use as well. So uh, look far, go deep and be wide are the three principles to help leaders at first understand their context before we look deeply at at their decision and their blind spots. And I think that helps. Like, I I believe that- that. That makes you know, sense. It's a handy checklist too. I mean, they're easy to remember. Look far, go deep, go, go deep. Be wide. wide. Um, yeah. When you first encounter a company, um, when you, let's say, first encounter the management of a corporation that you're going to go be an advisor or, or trainer for, do you do like a little evaluation? Do you try to assess the client and tell me what that's like? Like, what do you do? What's your mental checklist when you're talking to the people that you're going to be working with? <laughs> Uh, humility and curiosity are the two main ones because those are antidotes to hubris and hubris absolutely yeah, is a blind yeah. spot. Yeah. So humility and curiosity and are they interested in learning more? Do, uh, do they have this niggling self-doubt, which is actually a useful thing. It doesn't always have to be a paralyzing thing because the niggling self-doubt keeps us humble, keeps us curious. And I think that's a really important piece. So a lot of leaders have come to me and say, I want to have more confidence. I want to feel more capable. I'm like, great, let's work with that because that will serve you so well. And they're like, what? Self-doubt is helpful? I'm like, absolutely it is. <laughs> so let's turn it into a superpower by tuning into your curiosity and humility. So in terms of prospective clients, that's what I do. And then once we start working together, I put them through the leadership maturity framework. So that gives a detailed map of their perspective. Where are they sitting in terms of their worldview and their values? And is this fit for purpose? Do they need to do some vertical development in terms of expanding their point of view and their perspective and their ability to navigate complexity? And that points us off into horizontal development, which is all about what's in your toolkit? What are the skills that you need to develop in order to help progress uh, vertically and horizontally so that you're, you're able to deal with the context in which you find yourself? I do want to get into into the book, but um, this is a very interesting conversation. Um, you know, are there any particular characteristics that make for an adaptable leader in your experience? Characteristics in terms of virtues, I think any of the virtues will serve in terms of love, curiosity, humility, uh, passion, that kind of thing. All of them are useful and and helpful in terms of being a good leader. In terms of skills and abilities, the the primary one to help us unlock any of the leadership abilities is is developing self awareness, <laughs> and that's easier said than done. You know, so understanding who am I, being curious about who am I, being curious about how am I thinking, being able to do some meta thinking about your thinking, doing some meta thinking about your values and beliefs is is probably the keystone one that unlocks a lot of capabilities later. Because unless you do that work, then just picking up and learning new skills not going to really help because you will apply it blindly without being able to explore context. And you really need to have uh, blinkers down for that and open-hearted curiosity to handle the context. Like, like you said, sometimes it's scary. 
it's almost a spiritual quality, right? That that higher order consciousness, the ability to step outside of yourself and, you know, um, examine your your values and your value systems and things like that. It's interesting. I, I do yeah, want to get awesome. I do want to get into the book. Um, and, and then, you know, cause you know, we, we said we we're going to start with the book and here we are, we're, we're just about to go to break, but, um, let me ask you this to frame so we can talk about the book after the break. Um, when did you decide that, um, you know, being a futurist tactically or, you know, in, in terms of day-to-day strategy for businesses and so forth, w- wasn't enough that you wanted to be a sci-fi author? Uh, in 2020, when I was doing a writing course with Stephen Kotler, who is co-author of a bunch of amazing books and author of, in his own right, of both nonfiction and fiction, and is done some work with Peter Diamandis in that field, in the nonfiction world, and fell in love with the writing process all over again uh, with that writing course called Flow for Writers. And I had a question that was niggling at me. I'm like, I'm wondering if fiction might be a more powerful way of advancing leadership ideas because story sucks you in. It gives you emotional gump. It gets you to needle away at at an issue or an idea in a way that nonfiction doesn't always. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is my next opportunity in terms of helping advance some of these ideas uh, around leadership and what the world needs for the future of leadership. So that was sort of the initiating kernel. I was in the middle of writing People Stuff, my fourth nonfiction leadership book. And so I just parked it for a little while, but had this kind of idea, like, "Mm, I think this might be next. And so once People Stuff came out, I started playing with scenes and writing scenes. And then that was the start. (laughs) That's very cool. Now, we'll definitely dig more into that in the second half. Uh, But before we go to our break, what we like to do is do a rapid fire question round, the lightning round. And Brett yeah. runs this part of the show. I know you're familiar with this, so it's <laughs> I'm ready. This is, about, this is much fun as getting a tooth extracted at the dentist's office. Is Go it that it, bad? But... Do I need easier questions? <laughs> I don't. Anyway, all right. <laughs> uh, what was the first science fiction um, you remember being exposed to on TV or books? Two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, and I remember watching that, going. Wow, cool spaceships. And then thinking, what the hell? What's that story about? What is that big obelisk thing? Yeah. And that movie has stayed with me for years and years. And with the monkeys, monkeys, obelisk, what the hell? So um, that was my first exposure. And I think even though I was a Star Wars fan, immediately as soon as it came out, as I was a little kid then, I didn't really see that as science fiction. That was just fun. Uh, it didn't stimulate the thinking brain the way that 2001 Space Odyssey right. did. So that was my first exposure. Yeah, and then the first, was... oh, he was amazing. And then the other one was Dune. Uh, I read that early as a teenager and loved the story and thought, woohoo, sandworms, <laughs> cool. And then my immature brain was sort of percolating on the bigger picture stuff. Didn't really get it, of course, in terms of environmentalism and social uh, progress and all sure. that kind of bigger leadership stuff, but those two things were probably the two big forces that guided me. Name a futurist or entrepreneur that has influenced you and why? Oh, David Matten. I love his work. He writes a blog called New World, Same Humans. It's fabulous. He picks up all the really interesting news tidbits around what's happening around the world and answers the question. So what about this? What does this mean? So that's my my must-read blog every week. Joanna Penn, 
who has a podcast called The Creative Pen. She's a writer and a writing futurist. And she's always ahead of the curve in terms of what's coming in publication of books. And lastly, author slash entrepreneur, Peter Diamandis. Can't Peter. go past him. And He's a good guy. Oh my God. And Elon, of course. And why those two? Because they get stuff done. They talk about the future, but they yeah. do stuff. And yeah. I think their boundless optimism and energy is something that I really admire. Yeah, we're going to get Peter on the show at one point. Um, oh, he's been on he's been on Breaking Banks before, so hopefully uh, we'll get him on this uh, fairly soon. What's the best prediction an entrepreneur or a futurist or a science fiction author has made, in your opinion? I think anything by Jules Verne has been pretty interesting over the time. Um, yeah, yeah, and Leonardo. A few of a few of your past guests have mentioned Leonardo da Vinci, and I think yeah, yeah awesome. Those early ones are are pretty prophetic. And is there a science fiction story or world that most is most representative of the future you hope for? No, because largely they're pretty dystopian. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you know, sci-fi and my own sci-fi is a little bit like that way too. Is is a cautionary tale, though. More recently, what I really have enjoyed it's been a series out on on God, I can't remember which platform. For all mankind, I think this yeah, is an amazing. Yeah retelling like a, a yeah, history exactly. revisionist. And uh, I really enjoyed that show in terms of and why I find it inspiring about the future is that, yes, we've committed to going to the moon and to Mars and and exploring all the challenges that come with that from a human point of view, as well as a tech point of view. So that's probably my inspirational vision of the future. Shows you what we could have done you know yes so. and what we might still yet do yes absolutely fantastic well let's take a quick break you're listening to the futurist with myself uh, brett king and rob tersek our guest this week zoe ralph and uh, we'll be back right after this break provoke media is proud to sponsor produce and support the futurist podcast provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists, and uh, I'm your host, Brett King and Rob Tersek. And, uh, you, you know, this part of the show, we like to do a bit of a deep dive. So I'm going to hand over to Rob. What can you tell us about the world of industrial robotics, Rob? Well, some more news from the future. Uh, this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about robotics, some breakthroughs in robotics. Uh, and the context for it is that last week uh, at Tesla's AI Day, Elon Musk made some big pronouncements. So he's always in the news and, you know, he's going to keep turning up on this show from time to time. What I thought I'd do is put some of those announcements in context because uh, whenever he makes an announcement, people pay attention, but they might not have the full context of what's happening in the robotics field. And there's a lot of news there. So uh, what happened is um, at the AI day at Tesla, um, Musk unveiled a new robot, a humanoid robot called Optimus. And this is a kind of payoff to something he teased last year at the 2021 AI Day. He mentioned that Tesla was building a robot, and then they had a guy in a bodysuit come out and pretend to be a robot. It was a bit of a goof. And in a way, that set up an expectation that's really quite dangerous because um, in the field of robotics, they always want to avoid comparisons to human beings because humans are capable of so much. 
uh, robots candidly aren't that graceful. And so uh, in a way, some people thought, oh, that was kind of a backfire. You know, that, that's not my backfire on him. So anyway, this was his chance to show their humanoid robots. And really, it's remarkable progress uh, for just under a year uh, since the time when they teased it last year. Um, this time they showed a walking humanoid robot. In, the, in terms of the form factor, there's nothing new about this. Uh, this form factor of like a robot that's sort of shaped like a human being, that's been visualized by a number of robotics companies since 2015. So in that sense, uh, the Tesla is not really breaking any new ground. Uh, and as usual with everything Musk related, there's a whole bunch of blather that's, you know, pie in the sky talk about general artificial intelligence and changing the world and so forth. I think we can set that stuff aside because that remains to be seen. Uh, what we're seeing right now is a prototype. And so what's really newsworthy and I think worth paying attention to is two things. Uh, first is the price performance promise. Um, Musk's goal is to sell millions of these robots at a price of $20,000. And he said it's specifically less than the price of a car. That's really a, an incredible price point to shoot for. And to support that, the Optimus robot is being designed for manufacturing at scale, which is clearly something that Tesla knows a few things about. Uh, the goal is to drive the price point down to less than like the cost of a car. And what you'll get for that is a... Um, a robot with a 2.3 kilowatt hour, 52 volt battery pack, which is sufficient for a full day of work. So what they've done is set out some specs that are truly awesome. If they can get the, if they can deliver that for $20,000. And of course, uh, Tesla knows a lot about battery management power systems right now at this point. So that seems like it might be plausible. We shall see. The second big takeaway for me is real world use cases. And so one of the demonstrators, not Musk, mentioned that Tesla engineers were able to port over the autonomous navigation system, the autopilot navigation system that is used in the cars, and they're using that for the robot. It's not entirely clear if like an automotive collision avoidance system is going to be useful for a robot that's meant to be handling machines and working close up, lifting and handling other things. So it's not so clear that that's an advantage, but if it is, well, obviously Tesla has 10 years of learning on those, um, on those auto navigation systems. And so that could be, if that's easy to port over and they claim it is, that will be a tremendous advantage. So those are two big advantages. Um, and the key thing that they're, they're taking away there is that they're saying that they're going to start to use this robot in the production lines at the Tesla factory. So they have a built-in use case, a real world use case. Because at the end of the day, all these announcements that you hear about robots, the one thing to be listening for is what is the real world use case? We see demo after demo, you know, things like Boston Robotics of like, you know, walking dogs and walking horses and walking people and so on, but they don't ever show them doing anything useful. So you really need to ask that question because otherwise what you're looking at is basically a glorified tech demo. Uh, so we're going to find out soon enough uh, how they're using this Optimus robot in the Tesla case. In these two areas, I think Tesla has some great advantages. But Tesla's going to face stiff competition. Uh, this is not like you know, electric cars and going up against old world automotive companies. In Japan, you've got Fanuc, um, Yasukawa Electric, Mitsubishi uh, Electric, Kawasaki Heavy Industries, Seiko Epson, Nachi, Fujikoshi, and Densu. So like Japan has a whole suite of really advanced industrial robot manufacturers. And in Switzerland, there's ABB. And Germany, of course, has KUKA, which is very well known in the, in the uh, manufacturing world, and another firm called Dürer. So there are quite a few competitors. Now, the background on this, why Tesla is interested in getting into this space and why they're making noise about it is that it's growing remarkably fast. Uh, so as I mentioned, we've been hearing about these kinds of humanoid robots since 2015. During the last four years, particularly during the pandemic, when factories were continuing to try to run, the population of industrial robots has skyrocketed. It's doubled in size. Um, and the market is growing at a remarkable rate, uh, a, a compound annual growth rate of about 15%. 20, uh, so 2035 they, is the year that um, 
it's that robots will overtake humans in terms of population. Oh, that's interesting. Already the, the population of human. Uh, so be human, kind to robots. You never know what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> and that, that population has increased uh, by 30 fold in the last four, four years. So it's growing very, very quickly. Um, so that market will grow. The industrial robot market will grow from about 16 billion uh, this year to about 30 billion in the next five years. So it's going to double in size. So that's the target that, uh, that uh, Tesla is shooting for. Interesting. And this information comes from a new report uh, from the International Federation of Robots, uh, Robotics, IFR. So last year, some 500,000 industrial robots were added to the global workforce. And that brings the total figure to about 3.5 million. Uh, that's from that IFR report, the Industrial, the International Federation of Robotics. Um, now, one of the areas this is really growing in, you probably noticed it from the examples of companies I mentioned a minute ago, is Asia, and in particular in Japan and in China. And that is directly related to a topic we've covered on the show in the past, yep. which is aging populations. Exactly. And as the population HK. starts yeah. to get older and older, if you don't have immigration and you don't have another way to replace that population, then you're going to have to turn to automation. The Japanese, uh, for a long time, had the you know the biggest problem with aging. That's they no longer have that. They no longer are suffering from that alone. Uh, South Korea and China are on the same track. But for that reason, the Japanese are very far ahead in robotics. That's their plan. Um, the, uh, so that's why this industrial robot field is growing. Now, there's a distinction I should make, which is really important. Uh, the differences between industrial robots and service robots. Industrial robots are nothing new. We've had those since the 1980s. Every auto factory is full of them. You know, if you go to the auto plant, the, the body, uh, not the body part where they're putting on the finishing touches. Uh, yeah, you see the giant mechanical arms. Those are industrial robots and they are lethal. Uh, they will kill you. That's why they're usually in a cage. Humans are kept out of the area. You're not allowed to get anywhere near those robots because they're moving at high speed and it's this big gigantic arm that could crush you. And it has. Uh, a, robot, a factory worker in Japan, one in Europe and one in the United States have been killed in automotive plants in industrial accidents with those big robotic arms. That's because those robotic arms are deaf, dumb, and blind. They can do one thing. It's like a big arm, but it can't see. It's not aware of you. It has no sense of you. The distinction I'm drawing is between industrial robots like that and service robots. And you're gonna to start to hear this term service robots more and more. Service robots can move around. Uh, so it's that machine, but now it can move around. And once it can move around, it has to have vision and it's got to have some sense of other things, including people. Uh, that's why Tesla's collision detection- Autonomous vehicles so will be service robots. And Drones that deliver Amazon packages will be service robots. Yeah, You got it. That's the connection Tesla's trying to make in their favor is to say, well, we know a lot about autonomous driving. So therefore we're going to know a lot about robotics. That's a bit of a leap, but they do know the part about yeah, the yeah. autonomous driving. And- um, now, the biggest sectors for this, of course, are automotive. That's, that's always been the case. That will remain the case. And the second biggest sector is electronics and generally the electrics industry. Those are two big and growing sectors in Asia. So no wonder that's an area that this is being used. What's interesting about service robots is that they can do things, uh, what they call handling activities, like pick and place, palletizing, putting items on a pallet, packaging things, loading up shipments, unloading shipments, uh, even very specific things uh, like bin picking, uh, which is really important for e-commerce fulfillment. Uh, you know, they use human workers to do this today in, say, you know, an Amazon the fulfillment soul center. destroying jobs as well. Yeah, it's a terrible job. It's, yeah. it's like using a human as a robot. You're doing this incredibly rep repetitive work. That work can be done better by robots for a longer period of time. 
Uh, so we're seeing that grow and grow. And this idea of service robots is expected to grow at 45% to be 45% of this uh, of this industrial robot sector. So it's going to grow very quickly. So that's a bit of an update from the world of cool. robotics, a topic we've covered before on the show with Harry Clure. And we'll certainly have him back. Well, we got Ben Gertzel coming up. So yeah, Ben, right. Ben will be great talking about this stuff. One of the I things I noticed also is the intersection of AI and robotics. Yeah. Uh, you know, it actually, when, when you talk to AI, AI researchers, they use the two terms interchangeably. For most of us, when we think of a robot, we think of a machine that's out in the world, and we think of automation as software that exists on a network or on a computer. Uh, the combination of those two things, using artificial intelligence in a robot, is what makes it possible for right. it to emulate and operate in the world around us and respond to people. It gives it autonomy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that and so that's and, and it's not, but it's not just AI in sort of a general sense in terms of programming. It's things like image recognition, right? Yeah, you know, which is, is yeah, you it, know. Yeah. So anyway, let's dive back in, Zoe, into uh, the the Olympus project. Um, now, um, you, you know, one of the things that I I do notice about when you when you start with this, it 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 feels it feels achievable. This future, you know, you start off with VR. You've got elements of climate. Um, you you talk about rolling pandemics, which again, as futurists, we know that um, because of glacial melt and climate change, we know there's going to be more pandemics. So you've pulled a lot of these elements into the story. But tell us a little bit about the uh, you know how the book came about and and um, you know what it is you are trying to to say with it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it, it's a near future science fiction one, so I haven't projected out thousands of years into the future. It's it's more like in the next 30 to 50 years in terms of uh, projections about some of the existing trends and how they might play out. The genesis of the book I mentioned earlier was around how might a story be more impactful. And then specifically, I started thinking about power as a theme. How does power play out? Uh, how how does power affect our leadership? And I started with sort of toying around with that idea. You know, how are we going to manage power in a future which is very volatile and uncertain with all these potential challenges ahead of us? And can we overcome some of the traps of power which show up in the earlier stages of leadership maturity? So that was sort of like the starting point in terms of the scene setting and then the and then the concept and theme I wanted to explore. And that evolved a little bit too. So from power, we also started looking at how does leadership maturity affect people's ability to come together as a cohort and deal with these challenges. And probably the third piece, which came out as the characters unfolded was how do our relationships affect our leadership goals? And all those three factors sort of came out as I wrote the book. So it's fairly organic process. I, I'm not a detailed planner. I tend to take a journal, ask questions of myself, and then come up with ideas. As a result, scenes pop into my imagination. I write those out. And then the, and then threading it all together is one of the things I worked with extensively with my editor in terms of uh, the overarching pace of the book and the structure and so on. So that was sort of the origins for me, asking big questions, which I think what futurists do, right? They ask really good questions and that generates insights, hopefully, or curiosity to explore new insights. And the, the book is called The Olympus Project. Tell us what you mean by that. What does that refer to in the story? 
<laughs> well, originally I was going to call it World Builders, and uh, my <laughs> you can't get that my, name. It's gone. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. My editor said um, too jarring because in in science fiction tropes, we, there's a whole thing about world building, about creating new places right, and right. so on. And he's like, I can't do it. It's it's just it, you brings up too much of that. So I had to let that baby drop. And he said it sounds a lot like uh, young adult fiction too. I'm like, it's not young adult fiction. So that was the original title that got tossed out. The Olympus Project, um, he said, maybe you need to have something more aspirational and like a lot of science fiction uh, and even NASA named a lot of their projects about ancient Roman gods, you know, with the Apollo project and Artemis and so on. So I'm like, okay. So I did a bit of research and Googling around themes in space and um, and Olympus actually is home of the gods in both Greek mythology and Roman mythology. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. perfect because the whole idea is about community design, world design. So change from world builders to world design. And in the future, we will have to design communities and housing differently in order to contend with the volatility of the climate factor. And if we're going to be building on the moon and on Mars, then how are we going to design these places? And how will these places affect how we interact as humans? And can we build places that actually accelerate human development? That was one of the interesting ideas I wanted to explore as well. So the Olympus project is is the concept in terms of what it means in the book. It's uh, central to the Lunar Commission, which is putting out a tender or asking for people to pitch to build the first community on the moon. And that is the, the plot storyline. So Guy Enterprises one of the lead world designers, and they are putting together a, a cohort of designers and uh, other specialists because they've never built off planet to put together a prototype as part of the bit. And it's a competitive story that has a resolution in the end. Nice. So there's a little bit of space drama there, a little bit of interpersonal action going on, uh, some tough decisions. And I gather there's some corporate ruthlessness. There's sort of like a, you know, skullduggery, I suppose that's, that's a foot as well in your story to keep it exciting. <laughs> do, you, do, you, word. <laughs> do you see this as a, as like an alternate um, reality or a, like an alternate universe, or are you trying to write it in our universe? it's not an alternative universe. I think it sails pretty close to the wind in terms of taking elements from existing corporations, politics, all that kind of stuff. The human drama is very much immersed in this world. Is it an alternative universe? I I don't know in terms, I I believe we're going to end up on the moon pretty quickly. So I think that's definitely coming to fruition. It's alternative in terms of offering, hey, hang on a minute, we need to consider the, the human the human element around this. Because I look at the, for example, whenever they have International Space Station pictures, I'm like, did they think about the interior design of this place? <laughs> like, it's pretty awful in terms of... Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. To no, it's ISS with the Chinese space station. You know, the ISS looks so cluttered and so... Mm. But, you know, you think about it, you know, this is one of the things of a, the, with a, you know, you've got prime real estate, you don't have a lot of space. Mm. So you use every surface. And that's yeah. the mm. thing with zero G or microgravity is that you can store stuff anywhere, right? As long yeah. as you can, you can tie it down. So it's not um, designed for comfort. Those are not luxurious no, accommodations. No. no. Uh, that, although no, so having said that, you know, you've got space hotels and stuff coming up where that's going to be an argument for alternative designs, right? Yeah. The issue, though, is that every additional power. On the luxury that you put in space, you have to justify the cost of that payload. Yeah. 
so Zoe, you know, you are an optimist and you're a person who is thinking, is encouraging uh, other people to think in a, in a positive way about the future, formulate future, you know, future plans that are optimistic. Yeah. And yet you've written this book that's full of uh, this sort of dark vision. And, you know, the funny thing, we just had this conversation with Ramaz Nam, who is very similar in the respect that he's trying to encourage people to think about yeah, renewable yeah. energy in positive ways. And he's very optimistic. He's, he's unabashedly optimistic. And yet he writes these stories that are about dark dystopian futures. So <laughs> what's going on with you writers? Tell me what the story is. Yeah, why can't you write utopian <laughs> stuff, man? Uh, okay, so... Great question. You know, why why be so all dark? And I don't think my book is all dark, actually. I think, like a lot of sci-fi writers, it's all about the cautionary tale. We present a future. I think every leader is aspiring to a better future. And yet, when we try and create those things, there's always things that hold us back. And I think in thinking about this, I like what Hansi Freinacht says, and he's got two books out, which I recommend when we're talking about leadership maturity and future of societies. He's got Listening Society and Nordic Ideology, and he talks about relative utopia. And I think this is a really useful paradigm for us to think about. And it's where we find ourselves now is utopia compared to what has been previously. So if we look 100 years ago, the world that we're living in now is a relative utopia. It's fan bloody tastic. And yet we are we are full of problems that generated or had genesis 100 years ago. So we're I think this idea, <laughs> Wait, Well, it's not that we're not we're not never happy. It's that as we create new opportunities and new situations and new technologies, they come with drawbacks and it's the same as we it's evolve as yeah. It's it's complex and there's always upsides and downsides. And it's the same in leadership maturity framework. As we grow and evolve, there's absolutely new benefits into seeing the world from a more complex, inclusive place. And yet there are blind sides or blind spots and downsides to each of those stages. And so that's sort of what I breathe into the book as well. It's like, yes, we are aspiring to this. And there are things that we still have to continue to contend with. It's not always going to be rose gla uh, rose colored glasses and everything's going to be solved into the future. I think we have to have that as a picture and move towards that and deal with legacy issues as well as new challenges that show up. Hansi talks about, you know, in terms of one of the challenges that we face now with all this burgeoning technology liberating us from uh, all sorts of mechanical um awful jobs as you mentioned previously is the growing challenge in our community, and we've seen this through the pandemic, is isolationism and people feeling lonely and the real huge need for dealing with mental health and emotional intelligence. So this is rising to the top is one of the sicknesses or illnesses that we have to contend with mm. in this relative utopia that we've created. And there'll always be something. If we clear that up, we move into the next stage of humanity's society and civilization. There'll be stuff that we need to deal with then that is a unintended possibly consequence of these advancements. So that's what I believe, you know, relative utopia is what we contend with. And that's why my book isn't like, hurrah, this is what we need to do and this will solve everything because I think that's naive. And I've experienced that, as I mentioned previously with the experience of the pandemic, that uh, this naivety of like, yes, this will be the thing that changes everything and it doesn't. <laughs> okay, so, so your book yeah. is like a thought experiment uh, to Absolutely. kind of condition people to thinking about this possibility, open them up to the possibility. Now, would you say it's more didactic and learning oriented or is it more entertainment and excitement oriented? Is it, you know, wh wh where do you fall on that spectrum? Um, I think it's more on the entertainment side of things. It's meant to be an emotional journey through there. 
I've seeded in different ideas in terms of the quotes at the beginning of the chapter for people to kind of chew on if they want to. So at the beginning of each chapter, there's uh, a quote from either the uh, Gaia's Code of Conduct or the World Design Manifesto or from one of the characters about one of their principles and values and practice. And it's meant to be seeding thoughts about what we could be working with into the future that also serves a story. So some people may gloss over those and just keep going with the story. So it's a little bit of that. I'd say it might be 10%, 15% didactic. It's definitely not a fable or a parable. God, I I really don't like those kinds of stories. So it's definitely not that. Yeah. All right, let me shift gears here a little bit. I want to bring us back down to planet Earth. Uh, so we're living in a time where leadership has become kind of contentious. Styles of leadership have become kind of contentious. Around the world, we're seeing the rise of these authoritarian leaders, in some cases, mm-hmm. straight up dictators. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in yeah. China, President Xi is now president for life. And he's reversed policies that were set in place after Mao Zedong. Uh, died where they were trying to prevent the possibility of anyone taking on a role like that. He seems to have recreated that possibility for China. Um, And of course, in Russia, we're seeing uh, President Putin behave in a similar fashion. And one thing we know about autocrats is uh, as they isolate themselves and try to assume more and more power and keep other people out of the power structure, they start to make bad decisions. Uh, I think certainly we can all agree that the decision to invade the Ukraine was one of the epically bad decisions of the 21st century. Tell us what you see happening. What's your perspective on the rise of authoritarian leaders around the world? Because even here in the United States, that's becoming a big theme. Oh, yeah. So there's two ways to answer this. Uh, one is I turn to the work of Mo- Moises Name. I'm not even sure if that's how you pronounce his, his name, but his two books on power, the latest one, Revenge of Power, talks about the rise of autocracy around the planet. And it's incredibly instructive in terms of looking at the playbook that the, each of the autocrats has used to get there. And polarization is one, dis, uh, destruction of truth is another, or two of the tactics that they use. Uh, and populism is the third strategy in terms of how they actually get to power. Do they hang on to power? History has shown that no, they usually, things usually end badly for autocrats. And yet I'm really, I, if anything makes me nervous, it's what's happening in Russia and China. Because the difference in China, say, for example, and actually to Russia to a lesser extent, is the command of um, IT and uh, electronic surveillance that each of those com- each of those countries has. And that's a really big difference to historical despots in the past. And so the ability to manipulate mindset and attitudes is really, really powerful there. And just the, the technocratic control of the population that China is going for is terrifying. In fact, David Matten, who I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, is showing up on my leadership podcast in a week or so. And we had a conversation about this. I'm like, that is terrifying. What can we do? <laughs> and a lot of it is about this whole idea of how do we disseminate truth? How do we actually d- filter truth is one of the things that we right. we need to deal with. What's causing the rise of the despots around the world? Some of it is is the pendulum swing backwards. You know, as we have a more um, prosperous society, in some ways, that division between rich and poor has accelerated, and so that is causing a lot of distress uh, for people. And so people tend to turn to strong men leaders and include strong women leaders in that as well, who say, this is the way it is, that black and white thinking is the way to go. It's us versus them. There is a comfort to that, even though it's an earlier stage of leadership maturity, it actually doesn't serve the context in which we find ourselves globally. It does serve those who are 
under duress to believe in a future where certainty, which is being flagged and shopped around by the autocrats, is the way forward. So that is how they're growing in in popularity. And that's one of the reasons why Trump is so popular as well, because he's like, no, nah, this is the way it is. Black and white thinking you're with us or against us. They're right. We're sorry. We're right. They're wrong. And that is that's a comforting blank to put on when you're having trouble feeding yourself. You don't know what your future is going to hold. Here's somebody mm-hmm. saying we can fix it. It's true. A lot of times people don't want freedom of choice. They want freedom from choice. And if anything, right now we live in a world of of really complex choices and decisions and cascading consequences. It's very difficult to think through those cascading consequences. That's that's why we run the program here, because we're trying to get more and more people to think like a futurist so that they can develop that muscle a little bit, you know, project forward, consider scenarios, think about the consequences of those scenarios. But admittedly, that's a tough skill to build. And a lot of people want to avoid it. One way to avoid it is to simply to listen to that strong man who's got an answer for everything, even if yeah. it's not right, yeah. who makes the decision for you. And then therefore, you, you don't have the freedom of choice. You've got freedom from choice. That 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 element of economic uncertainty, though, I think cannot be un, underemphasized. You know, um, if you look at AI, climate change, the pandemic, what uncertainty did it create? Uncertainty about the economic future, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, this this is where these these guys capitalize on this because they're like, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to solve all of these problems. But the reality is, um, rarely do they talk about the systemic um, breakdowns, the functional issues. You know, um, if they talk about inequality, they don't really offer a solution to inequality. No, they which is, demonize a yeah. group. That's how they always do it. Yeah. And, and also, with every autocrat, you get a rise in corruption and inefficiency. Uh, that's part of the poor decision making process. Okay, so we're delving into kind of the grim reality of today. <laughs> what we love to do in this show is think about a future, think about a different future. And, and this is the part of the show. Zoe, we would love you to. Put on your futurist thinking cap for a second. Yeah, big picture yep. stuff. Give us yep. some far-range visions, not just about populating the moon or maybe travel to Mars. Where do you see things 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road? And if you can tie that into your practice uh, of leadership training, I'd love to hear about the future of leadership 10, 20 years from now. Okay, Uh Right. So I think the one that's sort of burning into my skull right now is biotech. And it's probably because I have an injury on my knee. I'm like, oh, God, if technology was a little bit more advanced, we'd fix this really quickly. And rather having to struggle and suffer with it. And I think about that sort of led to thinking about um, our bodies, our human bodies are limiting factors in terms of how we can continue to evolve and contribute. And if we can sustain our bodies through biotech and amplified biology, like computer brain interface, I think that will be a massive step forward in terms of helping us accelerate solutions to our complex challenges. So I think there's that. In terms of the future of leadership, 30, 50 years into the future, I think you mentioned um, one of the things I wanted to pick up on that you talked about, you know, futurist thinking is so important to help us navigate uncertainty and complexity. This is the number one thing that we need as leaders to evolve to. And it's sort of at the tipping point into conventional leadership thinking, which is uh, linear-based A to B planning, project planning in terms of one to three-year timeframes. That's characteristics of earlier stages of leadership maturity. We need to nudge people into the um, systems thinking that's required to navigate complexity. And futurist thinking is, is an aspect to that. And so in order to move towards a future where we are dealing with 
setting up energy so that it's sustainable and not planet destroying and decentralization of our systems, uh, like our healthcare system, for example, um, and our supply of food production systems, then we need leaders who can actually understand, as you mentioned previously, like the whole system aspect of this. And so if we tweak one thing, what's the ripple effect? So these are skills that we need now that leaders need to embrace systematically and systemically across their organizations and and industries so that we contend with this stuff. And I think, uh, interesting, I do a lot of work in agriculture and in some ways they're quite advanced in terms of considering this. I mean, farmers are so embedded in the the earth. So they understand ecosystems and long-term thinking because that's the world in which they navigate and they're pretty advanced in their technology. And they've been hit pretty hard with a lot of the crises lately in terms of supply chain. So they're already set up in a context in which they need to think that way. Otherwise, they their businesses won't survive. They can't actually get a lettuce off their off their farm out to the, out the door and into consumers' houses and so on. So, uh, long winded question. The answer is complexity is the thing that we need to navigate. We need to learn how to understand systems, and we need to learn how to do projections, and we need to know emotionally the emotional mastery control. This is the other leadership skill that we need. How we can actually sit with the the physical, the physiological reactions to uncertainty, which is a biochemical thing. And that's the same biological equipment we've had for 100,000 years. So we need to learn how a deep emotional self-mastery piece is part of it. So that's that's what wow. I think is in the future of leadership. That was a sweeping, sweeping response to that question. Thanks for such a thorough response. So thanks for being so prepared for this show. You've, you've filled our heads with lots of good ideas about leadership in the future. You're Very welcome. I think if we if we could just do three things, you know, it, which is look far, go deep, be wide as a starting point uh, nice. for listeners. And rock on. Rock on. Yeah, I love it. And read science fiction. That's the, probably the fourth one. <laughs> the world would be a far better place if everyone traveled and read science fiction. That's my view. But uh, <laughs> hey, well, so, Zoe Ralph, the author of the of the Olympus Project and leadership trainer and coach and advisor and podcaster. Thank you so much for joining us this week on The Futurist. We've enjoyed this conversation immensely. How can people find more about the Olympus Project and um, the work you do, Zoe? Uh, Well, they can find it online. Uh, The book, The Olympus Project, if you Google it, it'll be on Amazon and the other distributors. It's also, you can get a personally signed copy uh, from me, from my website, zoerouth.com, Z-O-E-R-O-U-T-H. And I'm on all the social platforms on Twitter, LinkedIn, Insta, YouTube. Awesome. Thanks very much. Um, So that's it for The Futurist this week. If you like the show, don't forget what to do. Tweet us out. uh, Let people know about the the show. Give us a five-star rating. Um, You know, whatever you can do to help, we'd appreciate it because that helps us uh, in turn monetize the show and keep it going. Um, We want to reach out and thank the team from Provoke Media. Help us put together the show this week, including Elizabeth Severance, uh, Kevin Hersham, and on the social media side, uh, Sylvie Johnson and Carla Navarra. Um, but that's it for us this week we will be back next week with another uh, imaginative futurist thinking guest until then we'll see you in the future well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five star review that really helps other people find the show And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at 
Futurist podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.